It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Wise Money is brought to you by the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran, and Keene, First State Bank, Diane Bennett, and the Inspired Team at REMAX 100, and Bethel College's Adult and Graduate Studies Program. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm your host, and I'm one of the certified financial planners on the show, along with certified financial planner, friend, business partner, all-around good guy, Kevin Corhorn. Josh Gregory is out today. Yeah, so knowing whether or not you should have a trust as a part of your financial plan is a big question that a lot of folks have. Uh, the first question is, what's a trust? And then should I have one? So today we're going to address this very issue and to help you know if having a trust is appropriate for you or not. Yeah, I actually think I get this question all the time. And listener Phil called in with this or wrote in with this with this question. I think it's a huge financial planning question. Anyway, we're going to hit that here coming up. Uh, every week, folks, this is your show. If you have a question, just like Phil... Reach out to us, wisemoneyradio.com, or give us a call, 574-222-2000, or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can send questions that way as well, at Wise Money Radio, and um, yeah, connect with us that way. So, Kevin, you've uh, been around the country recently. Why don't you tell us what's been going on in your world? Country? I mean, world. Yes. Yeah. World, yes. I've been to the country of Africa, <laughs> as uh, John Kerry might say. No, um, I, I just got back from the country of Liberia. My wife and I and uh, two other folks went to Liberia as uh, part of our church. And our church is a church planting church, and we've planted eight churches in Liberia. And so typically about once a year, we go over to support our brothers and sisters over there. And Liberia is an interesting place. It landmass geography wise, it's about the size of Tennessee. And there's about four million people there. And the unemployment rate's about eighty-five percent. Wow. So um take how things are in this country and invert them, uh, and then add a few. And um that's what you have in Liberia. And it's very different. A lot of times if you just have spent your whole life here in the United States and you think, well, everyone lives like we do. And the reality is once you leave uh, the U S you find you find that really no one lives like we do. Well, the problem also splattered around Facebook or in the news is people here that live in this country that there are some marginal differences in how they live compared to other people in this country. And they're, they're honked off by it. They're frustrated by it. And yet when you get outside of the walls of our country, if you will, no, no pun there, no political pun there, but <laughs> you, you reach out a little bit, you realize the gaps, the, the social economic gaps in the U S compared to the chasm between the U S and the rest of the world is pretty amazing. It is. It's breathtaking. And you think just the simple things that you take for granted. So what are the things that frustrate me? Well, I, if a couple of my kids take a shower before I get in and towards the end of my shower, the hot water's gone, I'm a little frustrated. Well, 99% of Liberia doesn't have running water. They don't have plumbing. They don't have sewer. They don't have septic. They don't have electricity. And so it's very, very, very different. It's a 
incredibly different context. Even the difference between Liberia and Ghana, we spent a few hours in Ghana at the airport. Um, mm. And the, there are stark contrasts between the countries and even just the different countries in Africa yeah. as far as uh, um, what, what opportunities they have. And the encouraging thing this time that we saw is that there has been some progress. We were there a year ago, and it felt like the country was still in shock and still recovering from the Ebola crisis. And so it feels like there's really, um, they're really making some progress. There's a lot of what I would refer to as green shoots. There's lots of building going on. There are That's lots great. of entrepreneurs uh, selling things. And um, so, and it seemed as though the overall mood of the country, there was just, there just seemed to be more confidence, although that's somewhat anecdotal, but it was a, it was a great trip. We did just a couple of things. We did, um, my wife is a teacher and with, along with Ginger, another teacher from Elgin, Illinois, they worked with the teachers at the school there and the principal and helped them. We did uh, medical outreach. So we did blood pressure and blood sugar screening. And in each of the three locations that we did that, we found people with blood pressure of 200. And so these are, um, when you think of a, a hose, think way too much pressure going through that hose. Right. And when there's, when it bursts, there's a problem. And um, I had a chance to work with the pastors and do some leadership things. And the really one of the highlights was going to the hospital at Elwa. Now, Elwa stands for Eternal Love Winning Africa. Mm, awesome. And uh, Samaritan's Purse just built a $6.5 million hospital there. So in that part of the world, it is a state-of-the-art facility. And yet uh, their blood bank had no blood in it. And wow. so on Tuesday, the day that we left, uh, we were able to give blood. Um, in the U.S., when you go to give blood, they say, have you had a yellow fever shot and have you been to West Africa? And if you have, they turn you away. But in West Africa, if you've been to West Africa, they line you right up. and <laughs> they, <you're> still allowed <laughs> to go. Yeah. Or maybe that was the reason they had a blood shortage. Is that possible? Yeah. No? So it's, it's, very, it's, it, it's, it's very interesting uh, that the differences between uh, Liberia and the U.S., but it was, we were very encouraged. And as always, um, we, I feel like I'm always on the receiving end of, of the deal, mm. uh, the things that I've, I've learned. And the Liberian people are so um, beautiful and, and bright and thoughtful and warm, and they have a joy in the midst of their poverty that we can't seem to buy and most people here can't seem to find. Yeah. Because if you think about joy, you'd think, well, if money brought joy, then Warren Buffett would be the most joyful person in the world, or Bill Gates, or uh, Jeff Bezos, or whoever that might be at the moment, Carlos Slim. And then it just you work your way down from the richest to the poorest, and the richest has the most joy, and the poorest has the least. But um, I found that that's not true, and it's almost ironically inverted. Mm. So... Um, and it, it made me think, because a, a number of people asked me, well, what is, when you see the, the poverty in Liberia and then we deal with the war on poverty in the U.S., you know, what, what are the differences or what, what translates to our country? And I was thinking about, um, and I'd like to just share some stuff that, that, you know, the Brookings Institute said in this country, in the U.S., mm -hmm. 
what what the poverty in Liberia is there's poverty of opportunity because of the the two awful bloody civil wars that started in 1990 and finished in 2003 to four in that range, and so you have a population of very traumatized people in the country was set back tremendously, and so they they're lacking opportunity. Well, in the U.S., that isn't what what our poverty is, and, it, and the Brookings Institute says, hey. If you want to avoid poverty and join the middle class in the United States, you need to do three things. Number one, complete high school at a minimum. Number two, work full time. And number three, marry before you have children. And if you do all three, your chances of being poor fall from 12% to 2%. And your chances of joining the middle class or above rise from 56 to 74%. And the Brookings, uh, they define middle class as having an income of at least 50000 a year for a family of three. Mm. So basically, if you're going to take something from that, if you want to avoid poverty, complete high school, work full time, and marry before you have children. And those aren't just opinions. They almost sound, When you say them, it sounds like, oh, this is suggestions. No, this is a research company that's backed this up right, they here with the research. They, they don't have an axe to grind. They don't have a horse in the race. They're, they're not leaning um, in one direction or the other. They're just saying, hey, look. Based on scientific study and research, these are the three things in the U.S. that you have to do. Well, the other application I was going to ask you, you know, what your thoughts are with Liberian poverty versus poverty here in the U.S. And I would just tell you right now that if you live here in America, you are blessed. Oh, yes. You are blessed. And and when you compare yourself to others, this is why we talk about this on the show from time to time. Don't compare yourself to others. That's a trap. That robs you of joy. Absolutely. Right? And so stop comparing yourself to others. Listen to wise financial principles. Take small steps, small steps, but intentional steps to right your financial ship so that you're not too bitter or your your joy is not robbed from you. Because you were born, you live in the richest country in the history of the world. And yeah. and you've got tons of opportunity. You are blessed. And so that's that's a great perspective. Now, uh, we've got a lot of hit listener questions here to hit. We're going to hit Phil's about Revocable Living Trust in just a moment. But thank you, Kevin, for going to Liberia. Thanks for that update. A lot more here to come here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Good morning, folks. We're so glad to have you with us today. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name's Mike Bernard. I'm in the studio with Kevin Corhorn. Josh Gregory is out today. So just the two of us, as well as Casey Hendrickson, working the board as usual. Special thanks to the attorneys at Ledoux, Kern, and Keene, and First State Bank for sponsoring the content of today's program. Today, we're talking about, actually, we're going to launch with Phil's question in just a minute about whether you need a trust or not. If you have a question, reach out to us, 574 574- Two 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 thousand, or visit us at wisemoneyradio.com. Finally, if you missed anything and want to catch up on previous episodes, I know a lot of people listen to the podcast on iTunes. I subscribe to it when I'm cutting grass or whatever. It's springtime. I usually listen and uh, listen to the wisdom that Josh and Kevin have to say and kind of laugh at myself. But uh, anyway, um, or you can catch up previous episodes right there on the website as well, wisemoneyradio.com. All right, I mentioned we've got a couple great questions from listeners, and if you've submitted a question, thanks for your patience. It's just we're working through them. Today, we're kicking it off with Phil's question. Here's what he asked. Does a revocable living trust 
protect your assets from Medicaid. Not Medicare. Medicare is health insurance. Um, Medicaid. Yeah. Medicare is the socialized medicine program for people 65 and older, just to oversimplify. Or if you're disabled, but yeah, there's nuances there. Yep. And Medicaid is the healthcare system for indigent people. Yep. So people that don't have any resources, um, that's the the social safety net for them. So does a revocable living trust protect assets from Medicaid? And I want to get into what a revocable living trust is, but just to answer the question, no. A revocable living trust does not protect your assets from Medicaid. Yep. And if there's... If if you're if this is piqued your interest, we're gonna we're gonna strip Phil's question apart and put it in two segments. This one we're answering now, and that is, does it protect against Medicaid? But some of you are thinking, well, what in the world's a revocable living trust? We're gonna hit that in in just a moment. Speaking of the Medicaid thing, we've got uh, elder law attorney special guest Michael Murphy gonna be on the show with us next week. Medicaid planning is controversial, folks. We've already taken some heat from listeners about, hey, is this an ethical thing? Should you even be doing this? You guys advise people on this? No, we're not attorneys, folks. However, we're going to help people unpack the law and figure out what's appropriate for them. Michael Murphy is going to be on with us next week to talk about it. But here's what I would say, Kevin. The reason a revocable living trust doesn't protect against Medicaid is because of the word revocable. You actually still have control of it. It's, It's your right, your authority to make changes or withdraw money or add money to. Yep. And the thing is, and just to piggyback on what you said, Mike, we are not attorneys. And as we dive into this, it's going to get a little technical and we, we try to remain a jargon free zone, but today we're probably going to be taking the simple and breaking it down and making it complex for you. Yeah. So just hang in there um, <laughs> because we have a knack for doing that, uh, unfortunately. So here we go. So no, really, you know, as a general rule of thumb from the world of, you know, the debtor creditor law, whatever you have direct access to, your debtors and creditors have access to. So this means that assets owned by the revocable living trust while you are alive are still subject to your personal liabilities, including nursing home expenses. And so any assets owned by your revocable living trust must be reported on a Medicaid application. Because they're really, it's still your your money. It's still your yep. assets. Your trust owns the assets and you own the trust. Yeah. So you own it all. So basically individuals who have assets in excess of the allowable Medicaid limits have, you know, they're pretty limited as, as far as what they can do to qualify for Medicaid. As you said, Michael Murphy's coming. Mm-hmm. He'll talk about how you qualify for Medicaid in the state of Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's different in Michigan and the rules are different between the two different states. So it, that does get fairly technical, but um, a lot of times people have gone to a dinner seminar or something else and they heard from a friend or heard from right. a friend. Hey, if you want to protect your assets from Medicaid, you should get a trust. Yeah. And so people are, have that's that piques their curiosity. Well, if that's all I have to do, how do I do it? And I've seen the packages that the attorneys put together. Hey, it's $6,000 for this. And you're going to protect your, your assets from a Medicaid spend down and things like that. And, um, it, it it's, it's, uh, 
I wouldn't say it's there's an intentional misleading there, but it can be very confusing. And if you don't understand how things work, you might be led to believe that it a revocable living trust will do something that it actually does not. Yeah. Yeah. So more on the Medicaid piece, tune in next week. And I think that's going to be a very interesting discussion that we have. And and there's a, a couple, like I said, that's it can be controversial. We've received some questions from fans of the show, comments about that. We received another comment recently, a couple weeks ago, from an individual uh, that works at a funeral home talking about, wait a second, you guys haven't been talking about pre-planning your funeral. That's um, excluded from your estate. And so let's talk about that. We're going to be hitting that next week as well. But part of that explanation, Kevin, kind of you needed to re- rely on, well, some knowledge of what a revocable living trust is. So with that answer to your question, Phil, that unfortunately, no, it doesn't. And hopefully you haven't been misled by a friend or well-meaning attorney or something like that, but it, it doesn't. Your revocable living trust, those assets are not protected from Medicaid uh, spend down. But what in the world is a revocable living trust anyway? For the rest of you, what is a revocable living trust and do you need it? This is probably the one of the biggest financial planning questions out there because it's got this mystique to it. The word trust, it makes it sound like, well, it's this, it's this big deal. Well, once your assets reach a certain level, you need a trust. No, it's a pretty specific tool. And we're going to break that down here in just a moment. Yeah. So when you, when you look at that, the players, let's just talk about the players in a revocable living trust. The first player is a, the grantor or the creator of the trust. The next player is, is the, the doer, the trustee who has the duties to perform. And the third is the beneficiary, which is the one or the ones who receive the benefits from the trust. And of course, there can be more than one trustee or beneficiary in any trust. But usually at the beginning, there's, I mean, that's all the same person. The grantor, the creator, is also the trustee, and they're also the beneficiary. It's their money for them, overseen by them. But it's when they're incapacitated or when they die that the successor or the people next in line really play a big role. But anyway, yeah. we, we can get in, we can get into that. Yeah. And, and some, one of the, one of the, positive things about a revocable living trust that the beneficiaries can be changed anytime. It's, it's very easy to do yep. and it's very inexpensive. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more about pros and cons, but some of you I'm sure are still a little hung up on revocable living trust. Revocable as the name implies means it can be revoked in whole or in part at any time you can change it. That again goes back to Phil's question. That's why one of the primary reasons why it's not, those assets are not excluded from Medicaid because re, it's revocable. You can change it. There is something out there called an irrevocable trust. We're not talking about that. That's one where you actually give up control, give up ownership. For most, most, most people, that's something that, that you don't even consider. It doesn't really fit in your situation. A revocable trust, though, maybe. The term living revocable living trust. The term living means the trust was created during your lifetime, the life of the grantor, as opposed to at death, which is called a testamentary trust. So revocable living trust means you can change it. You establish it while you're alive and it kind of coexists alongside you as you're still living. And then there are instructions embedded within that trust, that document, a certain things spring into action when you become incapacitated or you pass away. 
Right. And at, at you, when you do pass away, if you are the, the grantor, um, it becomes irrevocable. Yep. So whatever is in place when you die, that's what becomes set in cement. Mm-hmm. Just for your whole lifetime, your revocable living trust, think of it as wet cement. It can be changed and, and reset and reformatted. At your death, it becomes irrevocable. Yep. And so it, it cannot be changed. So a question that a lot of folks have, and it will probably get to this in our next segment, is, well, if I have a revo- revocable living trust, do I still need a will? Yeah, and that's let, a great let's question. Let's get into that. That's a great question, as well as, well, how do assets even get in the trust? Can I yeah. put my retirement plan in the trust? Do, do I put my house in the trust? All sorts of things that we are going to be tackling here in just a minute as we still break down what in the world is a revocable living trust and whether you should consider one. So that and much more coming up here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for spending part of your weekend with us. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name is Mike Bernard, joined by Kevin Corhorn. And big thanks to Bethel College Adult and Graduate Studies, as well as Diane Bennett with Remax 100 for partnering with us on the Wise Money Show. Today, we're just kicking off a, a question from listener Phil, who asked about what is a revocable living trust? Will it help with Medicaid planning? We've debunked part of that, but we're dissecting what in the world is a revocable living trust. A lot more to come there. If you have a question, go to wisemoneyradio.com or give us a call 574-222-2000. Lastly, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can submit questions that way as well, at Wise Money Radio. All right, once again, Phil's question, does a revocable living trust protect your assets from Medicaid? We've said no. That's the short answer. But it begs the question for many of you listening, what's a revocable living trust? Do I need one? And we're just starting to scratch the surface on that. Kevin, we left off with a a question of, well, if if I get a trust in place, does that mean I don't need a will in place? No, you still need a will. And the will that you would have with in, in conjunction with your revocable living trust is called a pour over will, although that you know, that term is not used anywhere in the will documents, but, um, it's common jargon. You already said this is usually a jargon free zone, but in the financial and estate planning world, that jargon means something. Yeah. Well, here's in it. it, This is a legal term that actually does make sense. So, (laughs) I mean, it means that any asset not put into the trust during the grantors, the grantor is the person who's creating the trust, um, during the grantor's life, pours over or goes into the trust at the death of the grantor as part of the residue of the grantor's estate. So again, we're we're getting a little uh, wordy here. But but, he, but here's the deal, folks. Yes. So yes, the simple answer is yes, you still need a will. It's a specific type of will that says, hey, any assets that aren't in the trust, throw in the trust. And this gets to two other issues, at least two. And that is, if you need, if you get a revocable living trust, once you have that document in place, you're not done. You then need to put assets into the trust. Right. You not only do you need to put your assets into the trust, and it it has not been uncommon in my career to sit down with someone and say, "Hey, 
the six areas of financial planning. The, the sixth area is estate planning. What do you have in place? Well, we've got a revocable living trust in place. And they usually say that like, well, so I'm all set. I've I'm, got things set up. I'm all set. So you look at the document. It was created in 2003, but none of their assets have been retitled into the trust. Yep. So they still own their assets in the end game here. What you want is your trust to own the assets you own the trust. And and for a couple of reasons, the primary one I would say is assets that go through the trust. That's one of the arrangements that we spoke about in our estate planning show just a few weeks ago. By doing that, those assets can avoid probate. Yes. Assets that go through the will, even if it's a pour over will, yeah, they need the attorney. They need that process. There's going to be probate costs. And the pour over will, if you have a trust, just says, hey, this money, these assets should have been in my trust. So charge me probate on this money just to put it in the trust for me. No, for the assets that you can, your house, some of your investment assets, a vehicle maybe, bank accounts, you once you get a revocable living trust, that document in place, you need to put assets into that trust. Yeah, and that does bring up a, a one, one point, Mike, is that once I've got a revocable living trust in place, it changes the way I administer my financial life from that point moving forward. Well, th- so this was, we're kind of breaking down pros and cons. To me, that was one of the, that's one of the cons. That's one of the disadvantages of having a trust. I, I tell people uh, when we're sitting down and I'm looking at their situation, and yes, you've got a considerable amount of assets that really you know exactly where you want that money to go when you pass. Let's put it in a trust now so it avoids probate. That's one of the reasons, that's one of the pros. But I always tell the offsuit, well, one of the disadvantages is, well, it can be a little cumbersome because how you manage your financial affairs from here on out, it's just a little bit different. Bank accounts or checking accounts that are in the name of the trust, you sign as trustee. Investment accounts that are in the name of the trust, you sign as trustee. You've got to remember those sorts of things. And um, then you've got to be aware of successor trustees and so on. So all good things, but yeah. it's a little bit cumbersome. It's a little bit of a mind bender. Yeah, real estate that you don't own outright. So yeah. if there's a mortgage on your house, it, the the complexity of of making sure that your trust owns that. Um, so there there are. It's not simple, but what's happened if you need a revocable living trust, it's likely that you have a somewhat complicated financial life already. You've accumulated certain assets, but one of the th- you say, well, what? How would I know if I was a good candidate for a revocable living yeah. trust? Yeah, and I think. To me, I think of a couple different candidates. One candidate is someone who owns property in two different states. Bingo. That's the first clue. If you're listening right now and you own property in two different states and you don't have a revocable living trust, listen. Run, don't walk to an estate planning attorney. <laughs> yes. And uh, feel free to work with uh, Mark Crinity. Yeah, sure. At Ledoux, Kern, and Keene. Yeah. There are lots of great estate planning attorneys in town. But here's why. Here's why is if you, as we already mentioned, if you have a revocable living trust and the assets are in that trust, meaning the owner is your revocable living trust, then it avoids probate. However, if you own property in two different states, you would have to, and you don't have a trust and you pass away, you have to do probate, administer probate in two different states. I'm talking to those of you who own property down in Florida. Could you imagine just how cumbersome on top of being just completely emotional, emotionally distraught because you've passed, your kids actually have to help with probate here in Michigan or Indiana, as well as down in Florida. 
that's a that's a, a it's a monster. And for most folks, when they are put in the position to have to deal with probate and estate settlement type issues, it's the first and quite possibly the last time they will have to deal with it. So most people are amateurs when it comes to this. And it's just because they don't have experience. And it is fairly complicated. And I've seen if if you don't have a good relationship with your legal counsel, it can become incredibly expensive. Yeah. So first reason or a a reason to consider using a revocable living trust if this is you is do you own property in two different states? If so, you should consider one. Another one I throw out there, do you have minor children? And do you have financial resources that would come into your estate when you pass away that you wouldn't want those kids to have immediate access to? So in my situation, I've got a daughter, Carrington. She's seven. Kuiper is four, and he is a monster. Oh, my goodness, <laughs> that man. He tests my patience, uh, but I love him. And so anyway, but Cindy and I both have life insurance. And so if if something takes both of us out, the kids are still around, there'd be a chunk of change that the guardian would oversee for the kids, but then they'd have full reign to at age 18. No, we don't want that. We don't want that. We have assets that we would want to administer beyond our lifetime in that case. And therefore, revocable living trust, you can put instructions like we do, and you say, all right, this money is all for the kids, but they get a little bit when they're 25, a little bit when they're 30, a little bit at 35, or however you want to structure that. Yeah, and you think, well, there's, you know, What's the right answer? Give me the teacher's manual that's got the answers in the back of the book so I know how I would string that money out for my children. And I can tell you, even this week, as a trustee of a trust, I'm dealing with the issues of unearned money. And, and money, to handle money, it takes skill and character. And to handle unearned money or inherited money, it takes even more skill and character. Mm-hmm. And the reality is you can have skill and character at 18 and lack it at 68. So it doesn't, it's not really age-based. It doesn't depend on your age. But I, I know in the situation that I'm currently working with, the inheritance, and this is how the distribution was set up, a third at 25, a third at 30, a third at 35. Yeah. What that is, that in essence end up, ended up neutering this, oh this person's drive. And so when I look at this person and their, their energy level or their interest in, in pursuing life things in a meaningful way, I just don't see it. So the, all, these are fraught with all kinds of different uh, risks, if but you will. But if you have a revocable living trust, you can influence that, you can change that, you can direct that as if it, but if the money is just going through a will, you really have no authority, no control. I'm thinking of at least one other reason, Kevin, we'll see if you've got it or another, why you'd want to consider revocable living trust, as well as a few reasons or disadvantages of it. So sure. a lot more here to come on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. 
Wise Money is brought to you by the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran & Keene, First State Bank, Diane Bennett and the Inspired Team at REMAX 100, and Bethel College's Adult and Graduate Studies Program. Good morning, folks. Thanks for joining us here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name's Mike Bernard alongside Kevin Corhorn. Joshua, if you've missed his voice, he's out today. Um, but we're uh, we're talking about revocable living trust, something we could have used Josh's wisdom, but we've we've hit a lot and there's a lot more here to cover. If you have a question, reach out to us, wisemoneyradio.com or 574-222-2000. Just like Phil did, we're answering his question about whether a revocable living trust protects assets from Medicaid. No, it does not, Phil, but what in the world is a revocable living trust? We're talking about that. Actually, why would you want one? Why would you need one? This is one of the most common financial planning questions out there. If you just go to an attorney, they might not know your entire financial life. Most likely they don't. What your insurance situation is, your tax situation, where your investments are at, what your income level is. You've got to consider all six areas of your financial life to determine whether you need a revocable living trust or not. And sometimes attorneys will probe and ask those questions to determine that. Other times they won't. So starting at the foundation of your certified financial plan and, or excuse me, certified financial planner and looking at your financial plan, assessing whether you need a revocable living trust or not uh, is, is really done best in that context. Um, all right, so we've talked about a couple of reasons why you might want to consider having a revocable living trust. One is if you own assets in two different states. Two, if you have minor kids and assets that you'd want to manage on their behalf past your lifetime. The third one I'm re- I'm thinking of, the third reason why you'd want... Oh, Kevin, what, well, do, you, you, what do you got? Well, you actually mentioned the third one, which is avoiding probate. Yeah, okay, yep, yep. So it, we're on, we would be on number four. Well, it, it ties in, number three ties in to number four, this one I'm mentioning, <laughs> that is... I think anyone out there, the reason why I'm, I'm saying it a little bit differently, anyone out there would say, oh, probate, that sounds like a four-letter word. <laughs> yeah, I don't want that. You're saying a revocable living trust, I can avoid it. I'll do that. Now, it probably makes sense to develop a strategy to avoid probate only if your assets exceed a certain level. And I'm going to go one step deeper in, in, into that. Your assets that don't already have a named beneficiary to them. Right. Okay. Because your 401k, if that's where your nest egg is, it's already got a beneficiary assigned to it. So that in and of itself isn't a reason to get a revocable living trust. If if you've named a beneficiary. Yeah, that's right. Because we've point. seen lots of folks with a 401k and you say, hey, who is the beneficiary of this? And they say, well, it's my spouse and then my children. And you look and it's their former spouse or there's not one named mm-hmm. and it, because they... They used to have a 401k with this company. Now it's uh, a different 401k provider. And for whatever reason, the beneficiaries designations got lost in, in translation there. So I would I would be very careful to make sure that you, you have named beneficiaries on all of the assets that you possibly can. Well, this is where, again, I, I launched this segment talking about how this advice really comes from your certified financial planner to start. It's based on your financial plan because most times the attorney's not going to know how much wealth you've got saved up, where your nest egg is really at, whether it's in just your house or whether it's in a 401k or IRA. And just know if you do get a revocable living trust, 
that trust will not become the owner of your 401k. No, the owner is still you. In fact, that trust probably won't have any influence on your 401k because as Kevin said, you've named a beneficiary to it. Same thing with your IRA. The I in the IRA stands for individual. Well, the trust is a different entity. It's not an individual. So you setting up a trust isn't really going to influence your IRA much at all. So if you've got significant assets beyond those couple of sources that already have a named beneficiary, well, that's a reason why you might want to avoid probate and set up a revocable living trust. Yes. So are we on to the next reason? Yeah. Okay. So when you look at probate, probate court files are open to public scrutiny. It's a, so when, and probate is not a bad thing. So probate, think probation. So if I have a will and it gets probated, it's a matter of public record and it says these are my assets and this is who they go to. And that way, if um, if I have a child out there that uh, somehow wasn't named in the will or uh, uh, a brother who said, hey, wait a minute, that, that was supposed to be given to me at uh, this person's death, that, that's what the probate process is for, to settle the estate. The problem for some folks who like privacy is not everyone wants their financial matters to be open to public scrutiny. They don't want the rest of the world to know what they had and who it went to, et cetera, et cetera. So some folks say, you know, I would rather have privacy. And so um, let's, let's, let's do that. A revocable living trust gives that privacy. It's yeah. not, um, it's not public record. You know, it's interesting. This is where our nerdy financial stuff becomes relevant in most of your lives is when, you know, a celebrity dies and they don't have their estate plan situated. And so things just go through the will, go through probate. Then, right, yeah, there's a, a lot of people contest it. And there's been several, several very well-known celebrities where you'd think, oh, I bet they've made a ton of money in their life, millions of dollars. They've probably got these financial matters all buttoned up and they don't. They right. don't. They've passed at a time, uh, probably a tragic time, and um, their financial life was not in order. So Yeah, the most recent example of that is Prince. Yeah. So at his death, his financial matters were completely unbuttoned, if you will, yep. like a, a blouse worn by the singer formerly known <laughs> as Prince. All right, so those are some of the reasons why you'd want a revocable living trust. If that sounds like you or your situation, you you sh you need to have further conversations about this. Let's hit a couple of the drawbacks. The first one is the cost. Sure. If you're setting up your basic estate plan and getting a will, living will, and um, healthcare power of attorney and durable power of attorney, if you add a revocable living trust to that, the cost is going to go up. It's going to cost an extra couple hundred, maybe even an extra thousand dollars to get a trust in place. It does avoid probate. So you, there might be some savings there in the end, but there isn't a, a higher upfront cost. The second yeah, is... And I, well, and just, just uh, most folks are wondering, well, what is that cost? So I'll give you some sort of a range. And just this is a very general uh, ballpark, but think somewhere between 1000 to $2,500. Yeah. If, and depending on the complexity and the amount of time that it takes and whatnot, if it costs, let's say, $6,000, it's probably because that free dinner that you got 
you're paying for it. Yeah, it, it, that's a good point. The The cost range should be between 1000 2500 really not outside of that. Um, the other complexity or drawback is you then need to fund it. So sure. once again, Kevin already mentioned this example. Once you get the trust document done, a lot of people think, all right, so I'm set up. No, you then need to put assets into that trust. So you need to have the house own by your trust, go through a quick claim deed, might need to change the owner of bank accounts, change beneficiaries on some accounts. And so there's some work to getting that put in place. And then as we've already mentioned, um, you've got to, um, there's a little bit of burden that from moving forward, you're acting as the beneficiary of the trust as opposed to just yourself. So you're signing checks as trustee and and so on. Yeah, and there's some there's some bookkeeping required and, and it really needs to be orderly bookkeeping. And so you either need to be able to do these things yourself or work with your financial planner or your estate planner, whomever, to make sure that you're able to um, just handle the basic administrative duties of having a trust. Yeah. So I I would say to to recap, there's there's several reasons why a revocable living trust could be very appealing and very helpful in your financial situation. There are countless stories and examples that we've had where people have obviously needed a revocable living trust. We've helped them get one in place and it was it saved them a considerable amount of time and money and facilitating their overall estate plan. Mm-hmm. If you've got any of those situations we've mentioned, I think the, the most um, obvious one is owning property in two different states. I would encourage you to take action here. The Wise Money Show is all about taking your next step in your financial life. I'd encourage you to take action. Know that it's not perfect. It's not a silver bullet. There are drawbacks. There's some coaching that you'll need to get everything set up and how to proceed and move forward uh, appropriately. But for many of you, this could be a very important component of your estate plan in your overall financial life. I'm assuming there's going to be more questions about this concept uh, that come from you on the show. And so feel free to reach out to us with questions. Go to wisemoneyradio.com or give us a call 574-222-2000. That's going to do it for us today, folks. On behalf of Kevin Corhorn and myself, the rest of us at Corhorn Financial Group, have a great weekend. We'll see you next Saturday for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated.